education, but we're here for a real education. Deep, 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 deedly deep. Welcome to A Real Education. I'm your host, Tim Wick, and I am joined by special guest co-host, movie mastermind, Patricia Wick. Well, hello. Hello. And we also have with us today movie, um, I'm going to call her movie <laughs> Mark. Yep. Heather Rand McKay. Hi, Heather. Hi. Hi. So we are here to watch Oceans 11, uh, specifically the 2001 Oceans 11. Now, Heather, you are our new person here today. So what I need you to do is tell our listeners what you know about Oceans 11. Um, I know that everybody is good looking and that it's about a heist. Everybody is good looking and it's about a heist. Well, it's a movie. So... The good-looking part is kind of a given. The good-looking part is, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a given. Okay. So that's, yeah. But I mean, fair. You know, you're 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 just telling us what you know. It doesn't have to be right or wrong. It's just what you know about the movie. So what you know is very little. I know Clooney is in it too. Clooney. Well, then that's part of the good-looking part. Yeah. Yeah. I'm covered by that. Well, it yeah. could have been Rosemary Clooney. It could have been Rosemary Clooney, but she is also good-looking, and therefore, well, fair. Still yeah. counts. Still counts. Still counts. But I'm assuming you're referring to George Clooney, who is, in yeah. fact, in the movie. I will give you that one. And um, related to Rosemary Clooney. Yeah. And good looking. And good looking. So um, so this movie is uh, a remake of a film from 1960, also called Ocean's Eleven. However, in this case, Ocean's Eleven is, ele the word 11 is spelled out as opposed to in 1960 when they actually use numbers for 11. Uh, in virtually every other way, these movies have nothing to do with one another. I mean, that's not entirely true, and we'll we'll go into some of that when we come back after we watch the film. But uh, it is directed by Steven Soderbergh, who is an interesting director in that he really is very. Uh, I don't want. I don't know the best way to say it. He's just kind of all over the place. There's a. He's got his style, but when it comes to genre of film, he'll direct just about anything. Um. So this is, uh, as you mentioned, it may or may not be a heist movie. You'll find out when you watch it. Um, but, I mean, he's directed science fiction. Uh, he's directed comedy. He's directed drama. He's directed horror. Uh, he pretty much will do anything, whatever mm, strikes his interest. Um, and he's pretty good at it, too. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't do too many, too many really bad films. He has some films that are misses, but they aren't necessarily awful. Is this his most famous movie? Probably true. What's his second most famous? Uh, probably Sex, Lies, and Videotape. I don't know that. Oh, well then. <laughs> there you go. Uh, um, thinking what is Solaris is down on the list. Solaris is, I mean... People have heard of it. They've heard of it, but it was not very popular. <laughs> Didn't say it was popular. Um, I'm trying to think... Well, we'll, we'll look it up um, because I don't have it in front of me. I think he's actually, uh, he's got an Oscar on his shelf for something. And uh, I can't remember what. So we will look it up and uh, and then and, and do a little more on his filmography later. Uh, I guess, you know, yeah, the cast is definitely something to pay attention to here. It's uh, it's one of those movies that gets by, that that, that easily could have gotten by on Star Power alone. And hello, the new kitten is heard from. <laughs> or maybe it wasn't. I don't know. We'll find out later. If you, if you heard a meow there, then that made sense. And if not, it made no sense at all. What kitten? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so, Pat, do you have any observations to make about this movie in a non-spoiler type fashion before we go to watch it? 
Um, no, I think most everything can wait until after. Everything can wait until after. Most everything. Most everything can wait until after. And that is that is fair. This is a movie that can be easily spoiled. And uh, it's more fun to just kind of watch. Indeed. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go watch the movie. And okay. we'll be back in mere seconds through the magic of podcasting. A little less conversation, a little more action, please. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. A little more bite, a little less spark. A little less fight, a little more spark. Close your mouth and open up your heart and baby satisfy me. Satisfy me, baby. Baby, close your eyes and listen to the music. Dig to the summer breeze. And we are back. Millions of dollars have been stolen. A lot of porn pamphlets have been blown up. <laughs> and we have watched Ocean's Eleven. So uh, the first thing we have to do, it's the first thing we always do after we watch the movie, is we ask our, our newbie, our person who has never seen the movie before, what they sought. So Heather, what they sought? Uh, thought. <laughs> Heather, this is your first time watching Ocean's Eleven, so you get first say. What did you think? I thought it was fine. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I I am capable of enjoying like fun actiony movies. Um, the only other heist movie that I think I've seen this is a heist, right? Yes. Yes. So I saw the Italian Job. Uh, the remake. W- yeah, with all the hot people. With Edward Norton. Yeah, the hot people and Edward Norton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I was kind of expecting like a like a bad guy on the inside. Like I wasn't expecting it to go smoothly. Ah, you were not. You were expecting uh, one of the one of the eleven to be a turncoat. Yes, mm. um, I was surprised that it went as smoothly as it did, and it went more smoothly even than than we thought it was going. Um, so that was a that was a pleasant surprise. Um, yeah, it was. I thought it was enjoyable. Um, they. They were much smarter than they seemed to be, um, but the character development that we got was a bit uh, scanty, and so I wasn't sure if they were going to be capable of. I mean, I guess they're professionals, right? (laughs) As professional as you can be, as criminals. Professional criminals. Well, you know. Those who live outside the law. Well, and these are people who have codes of honor and conduct. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you know, I think um, the film is, uh, in this particular case, there's a lot of misdirection that goes on in the film. And the misdirection is primarily uh, directed at the audience. Um, there are a couple of different ways you can always play something like this. You can play it where the audience is in on pretty much every part of it. Mm-hmm. And then you can play it where where the audience basically doesn't know the the play um, that the that the con artists or the thieves are going to be be using. Um, I in in heist films, I always find it uh, a little more fun if I don't know what's going on entirely. Um, if there is some kind of, uh, surprise in in what they're trying mm-hmm. to do. Well, the two main things are you either know everything, and then something has to go wrong, right? Like otherwise, turns. right? There's a turncoat, or something happens, or they give you enough information that 
you don't know what's going to happen next or something happens where you're like, oh, my God, you think it's gone badly. And then, no, they already had a solution for this problem. So it kind of makes me wonder how many other solutions were waiting in the wings. Right. Like, of course, they were going to call the cops. And that seems really obvious to me now. So that they had a plan, assuming and knowing that that was going to happen and like kind of counting on that to happen in order for them to actually get the money out. Uh, As they walk through the front door, just like they said he would. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think not knowing what was happening made me enjoy the surprise of it a little bit more. I think they also do some really good setup bits. Like, uh, you know, th- through the whole thing, you've got Saul t- taking his antacids because he's got he's got ulcers. So we see him having health issues. So when he collapses, we actually, for a minute, are under the impression that that is not part of the plan. I was really worried about him. Yeah. Like, he yeah, was the, in a full sweat. Yeah, the first time I saw it, I felt the same way. I was like, dang, he's going to have a heart attack, and it's going to just throw it. They're, they're not mm-hmm. going to know what to do because it's not part of Nope. Turns out, completely part of the plan. Um, Danny getting Dan, Danny uh, showing up and, and bothering Tess was, you know, twofold. I mean, obviously, he's uh, he's trying to win his wife back, but he's also, he has to do that to get... Terry Benedict annoyed with him. Mm-hmm. And the one person who'd be most likely to steal from him is the one person who can't steal from him because theoretically three of his goons are beating him up. Well, two are keeping watch on the door while the big goon is beating him up. So he couldn't have been had any part of it. Were those two goons the ones in the car at the end? Yes. So were they tailing him or were they buddies all they along? They were tailing him. They were hired by Benedict to tail him. As soon as he got out. As soon as he got out because Benedict's still assuming that he committed the robbery and he wants to catch him using the money, essentially. And when they kicked Danny off of the project, that was real. They were really mm. like, you can't do it? No, nope. it was totally fake. Oh. It was totally fake. They did it all just to, just to kind of mess with Matt Damon's character. Yes. So that he would feel more relaxed or natural or something? Or that there was actual consequences? Uh, I think sure. it was an elaborate hazing ritual. I think hazing is true because when he's in the elevator and he opens the door, and it's like, what did you do that for? Giving me a heart attack. It's also a test, I think, for him because, you know, his job is to watch Benedict and report back everything. Mm-hmm. So the test is when Ocean goes and meets with Tess and Benedict, is Linus going to report back or not? And I think they're they're right there. They're testing whether or not he's going to do his job appropriately. Okay. And the gr- good of the group needs to be ahead of the good of any one individual. And in this particular thing, it was an absolute test to make sure he would do that. Okay. Not that he would go, oh, but, well, I mean, he's my buddy and you know, he's going after his ex-wife. So I guess I'll look the other way. The right. whole point is no. To make sure that he's committed to the job and not the guy. Right. right. Got right. it. That, that, yeah, you have to be loyal to the job. And if any member of the, the group is, is going to, is doing something that's out of, that's not going to benefit the group as a whole, then they've got to be outed um, immediately or close to. Close to. Close to. Um, 
so I, I I enjoy a lot of the ways that they. I mean, they 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 do little things like earlier in the film. There's just one shot of the air freshener that's in the mm-hmm. the SWAT van. And you're like, okay, it, which seems like just kind of an interesting shot because that's all it is at the time. You but know, it's from another. It's watching something happen from another angle, and there happens to be the air freshener. And you're like, well, that's kind of artsy. I wonder what that's for. <laughs> and then you see it later and go, oh. Oh, they had this all along. All of this was covered all along. Well, they had, I don't know the people's names. They had the old guy chomping down the Tums earlier. Yeah. At, with different people at a different table, too. So they they were all smarter than I thought they were going to be. Yes. Like, they, they, of course they have to be because it's, you know, a big heist. But they, I was pleasantly surprised well, at their competence. <laughs> well, you expect you kind of need to be pretty competent to run a, rob a casino, right? You'd hope. Well, you, you one would hope, but you also are thinking that like the two brothers that are constantly bickering, like they're still twelve. Yeah. It's like they are bickering, like they're still twelve, but they're good at their jobs. They just really want to needle each other. But it's almost practice, yes. since most of what they they are is distraction. Yes, and and part of the distraction is just the fact that they bicker, um, and so you feel like that's 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 practice for when they actually need to turn it on. And you wonder how many different ways they practice. You know, one's a balloon guy, and the other one's the you know belligerent person who got bumped into. And so they were remote control driving the van. Yes, yes, and they kind of show that he's good at remote control cars when he's doing the monster truck at the beginning, right? right. Yes, that's smart. Yeah, the more you look at the movie, the more you're like, oh, this oh, they leads told to us that. Much. Like uh, when, when they're like, okay, well, you need to build an exact replica of the Bellagio vault. And, and the line the next person says is, uh, for practice. And the response is something like that. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> and of course, actually, it's it's entirely it's set, about, right? it's a to set film the... to film the fake robbery. And it's also practice. But you could practice a lot of those particular things without building the whole set and making it perfect. So who knows the whole story of what's going to happen? Only Clooney? Only Ocean? I would say Ocean knows the whole deal. Actually, I would assume almost everybody knows the whole deal. Well, uh, every every aspect of it, Ocean and, and Pitt have to know Randy, from the very is that beginning. His name? Rusty. Rusty. Ocean and Rusty know the full play from the beginning. But you know, everybody has to everybody pretty much has to know the full play if they're going down into the vault. So at that point, that's everybody but Ocean, isn't it? No. No, no I mean, no, sorry, Cheadle not doesn't go in the vault. Yeah, right? but Cheadle's got to know. He knows uh, the whole play. And the Bernie Mac character I would assume that they all know, but the people that are up in the um, hotel suite is the guy in charge of all the computer work, which he definitely has to know what's going on. The the one who was on the phone, the phone guy? Yes. Yeah, the tech guy. Who also got the security cameras in and was in charge of all that. So he has to know everything because it's just like, and go, not... And wait, we're going to do something this last minute thing. (laughs) Oh, by the way, I should mention, even though you should know if you listen to this podcast, uh, spoilers. (laughs) 
Spoiling it. Yeah. Spoiling it. Well, has anybody <laughs> else not seen it? It's been 17 years since it came out. <laughs> Somebody else hasn't. Sure. But theoretically, people are supposed to listen, watch the movie during that break. So. Because that break could be, you know, weeks. It's a risk. It's a risk. Anyway, so, yeah, I would think they all have to know the play about the only thing. They leave Linus in the dark about the fact that Danny's going to be in the elevator shaft with with him, which he originally was supposed to. Mm-hmm. So they just kind of give him, they, they leave him in the dark about that that final bit. And I have to wonder if the bit with Tess is something that Danny and, and uh, Rusty cook up. And are they the only ones that know because the rest of them don't need to? Like that Tess um, was was going to get back together with them? The last bit about Danny basically Outing. showing Tess what, Tess what a yeah. douchebag her boyfriend is. She – so I, I, I don't quite understand – this is where I always feel like I want more characterization because – like motivations get a little bit lost. I mean, I would say what about 30% of the movie was sort of building the scene for doing the heist. And then 60% was the actual heist. And then 10% was other stuff. So they split up, but we don't know why it was because he did crime. It's because he got, because he was a thief, but that hasn't changed. Right. Now he's rich. Is that, that's probably not a factor. I don't think the wealth is a factor. I don't think the wealth is a factor. I think there's a lot more that we're just not supposed to know what happened. Mm-hmm. Just that he got caught, went to jail. It did not go well with her. Like waiting on the outside. And he and she served him divorce papers. I don't believe at all she was involved in it in any way. And. Mm-hmm. Um, but just at the end when the phone is in her pocket and she's like, but I don't have a phone, figures it out. And she's like, you can see the look on her face. Oh, fuck. It's him again. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so goes and finds Rusty because she knows Rusty. So she just happened to be dating the, the Bellagio guy. Yes. Because because she knew that would bug him the most or because she was like actually interested in him because he was really dickish. Yeah, I think that it just worked out that way where I think we go with the heart wants with what the what the heart wants. Okay. Yeah, and he can probably be incredibly charming. Sure. And she's a beautiful woman who also happens to know a lot about art and he's like, "Hey, I want you to be the curator of all the art I do. Isn't this pretty awesome?" And now she's gorgeous and she's mine. Right. Yeah, that does seem I I mean, the that character, the Benedict character, is very much a a collector. A collector of beautiful things. Yes. Um, and so, and he's a control freak, which is why he's finally brought down. Right. Because he Bec- loses control and loses his mind. Right. And when he loses control, he makes bad choices and he doesn't notice things that he might ordinarily notice. Like he might ordinarily notice right away that the vault floor is different. Right. But uh, he doesn't because they've thrown him out of his normal pattern. And there's a lot of things that happened that's going on in his mind because, you know, he's got the rich arms dealer who is now 
who died in his secure security office. The power went out all over Las Vegas. The fight is gone crazy. What's up with that? Now someone's stealing $160 million with him, and he is off his game. Right. So I, and I feel like the reason, I mean, what's set up is the reason Danny wants to rob the Bellagio is specifically because he wants to hose over Terry Benedict because Terry Benedict is dating his ex-wife. That he might have gone for some other sure. theft game had it not been for the fact that he had a very specific personal reason to do this. And then he also had a friend who really didn't like Terry Benedict and would finance it for him. Um, so th- you know there's unspoken history of a bunch of stuff, but... Terry Benedict doesn't actually know who Danny Ocean is, except for the fact that I'm sure when he shows up, it's like, oh, I know who you are. It's for the ex-husband, because I'm sure he does background checks of all of his loyal employees and girlfriends. Yep. I'm sure he did full discovery on his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Or I'm sure head of security, their job is to, oh, look, somebody just shook his hand. Let's do full background check on this guy. So the source material of this was a screenplay that somebody else wrote and they adapted it from the screenplay. There isn't like a a book as source material. There's no book. The source material is Ocean's Eleven, which was a film made oh, in 1960 right. Right. Uh, starring the Rat Pack, Frank, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., etc. Uh, and that that film is a film of legend and we should talk about it a little bit. So uh, made in I, sorry, yeah, you go made in 1960. Uh, Sinatra and his pals were were all kind of performing in Vegas at the time. And essentially what happened is they said, hey, since we're all in Vegas, let's make a movie. So it's kind of like the Mickey Rooney, uh, let's put on a show, I've got a barn thing, except they said, let's make a movie, I've got a Las Vegas. Um, <laughs> and what are you going to do in a Las Vegas? Let's have a giant heist film. So it's this giant casino heist with all these these well-known actors and entertainers from the 1960s. And um, the plot itself it has some similarities to it. And I did a quick... Uh, we, we have watched it a while ago. It is... We did. Not worth watching. I okay. hate the movie with a fire of a thousand suns. It's boring. It's a heist movie yeah. starring all the people you recognize having a great time, and it's boring. Basically, all these but, people were, were partying in Las Vegas and making a movie, and... The story of how it got made is a lot more fun than the result. Sure. And so a lot of people love Ocean's Eleven for the story of how it got made. And the hij- and the story of the hijinks of the crew and the actors and doing all that stuff. The plot itself, though, I mean, it's one of those, I'll tell you it, and and how it, you know, is very, in some ways very similar. Spoilers. More spoilers. Spoilers for different Ocean's Eleven. But you haven't on. watched this movie, so yeah, never. No. If they care, but you know what, if they want to watch it anyways, pff, whatever. Um, it's a bunch of uh, World War II buddies that get together and uh, they decide they're going to rob five Las Vegas casinos on New Year's Eve at midnight. Mm-hmm. They basically get and uh, have a explosive device that takes down the power and they have rewired so that when the emergency lights come back on, it doesn't turn on the lights. It opens all of the cages 
where all of the money is. Mm -hmm. Then they all sneak into the cages, bag up the money, and throw them all into the um, garbage chutes. And the garbage chutes all go down, and then some guy has a job as the garbage collector who then collects all the garbage. And by the time everyone figures out what's going on, the money is out the garbage. No one, no one even figured out how that happened. But... I'm going to try to get rid of even more details. In the middle of this, one of the characters, the guy who plays the electrician, the character dies. I mean, the character actually dies. Okay. Unlike fake dying. So a lot of people Mm -hmm. who knew the movie were like, hey, in this guy, the character dies. Well, no, in this one, he really does die. And Las Vegas is shut down because there's this huge robbery. No one knows how to do anything. So they figure they're going to get the money out because the guy died. They're going to put... It in with the coffin with the guy's body, and then it'll be shipped back home to with his wife, and they'll get it somewhere either on, in transit. So their friend is actually dead. Their friend and actually like, died. We might as well take advantage of this situation yes. right. to our benefit. That is you. Yes. So, anyways, but as and- we have discussed on this podcast several times in the past, in 1960, there's something called the Hayes Code which is a code of ethics that movies must follow uh, because a bunch of kind of tight-ass, pain-in-the-ass people declared that movies were immoral and therefore they must be more moral. And one of the important things about the Hayes Code was if you were a bad guy, you could not get away with it. Okay. So bad guys had to be caught or they had to fail. That was... A, a, a firm rule that was in place until it started to phase out in the 1970s. So the solution to that problem was, because these guys weren't bad guys, because if I remember right, they were stealing money also because they were, uh, a couple of them were on really hard times. Somebody had medical bills. Sure. So they were trying to do it not just for, hey, let's get a huge amounts of money, but you know, let's try to help us because you know we're buddies from World War II and let's see if we can get this. But they don't get away with it because the funeral director convinces the uh, the widow that it would be a lot less money to transport a box of ashes. So the box gets cremated in front of them. With all the money in it. And, they, and it's because – so they – despite being the protagonists of the movie – they are considered ethically bad guys, and so they don't – They committed a crime. Okay. If you commit a crime, you cannot get away with it. So they're not mm. – because of the situation, you know, they're not going to go to jail for it, but they cannot profit from it. So the body, the coffin, and all the money is cremated, and that is how that one ends. It sounds way more interesting than it is. It that one's just... Okay, interesting. <laughs> it, it's it's not. It's boring. Yeah, the problem is, is the structure of the film is just dull. Uh, Whereas the structure of this film, it it moves along very, very quickly. It keeps you guessing, surprises you multiple times. You know, there there are a bunch of moments where you get surprised. You get surprised when you discover that they tapped into the Bellagio system to basically sneak in the tape of the fake vault so that they wouldn't see the robbery happening. You get surprised again when you find out that the robbery was a fake. You get surprised again when you find out that the van isn't being driven by a real person. And yet, 
as you mentioned, all of these things are set up ahead of time. Yeah. Heck, you get surprised when you find out that Saul didn't actually have a heart attack. Yeah, that was a pleasant um, surprise. So, so this movie is much more about setting up expectations and then sort of surprising you mm-hmm. um, multiple times with what actually happens instead of what you thought was going to happen. So when you rewatch this movie, knowing what happens and that they get away with it, do you feel like you still enjoy it because you notice things on the second watch that you didn't see the first time through? Like you see that they're meaningful the second time you watch it? Um this is probably more like the 30th time I've watched it. Okay. But absolutely. I want, I love good heist movies. Um especially if you're, you know, or you know, for the con, you're in on it mm-hmm. or you are, you know, you're hit by some of it. So I like watching it the first time just to see how it goes. And then after that, you watch what's done. I mean, it's how well is it edited? Are the characters well done? What are the themes? What are the overarching story types of what's going on? Are they, mm-hmm. uh, And then you also get to see the character interactions and decide, well, is that still real or is it not real? And I think uh, like one of the things that I noted that, you know, you pay attention to the second time through is like when they call 911 and you hear the voice answer and you don't really pay attention the first time. Mm-hmm. But when you watch it again, you're like, dude, it totally is the tech guy's voice. How did I not notice that? When the SWAT guy was talking, I actually recognized the voice because it's the same one that Brad Pitt uses in Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> it and is. So I was like, that, okay. I was more in on that one than I was on any of the other surprises, I think. Now, that one came out later, so... Right. Shame on Brad Pitt for reusing an accent. <laughs> but um, I do when I when it first came out, it was like I wonder how they're going to get out of this one and you it's like you know they're going to get out of it somehow. At least you're hoping they're going to get out of it somehow because Benedict is just kind of a dick. He's, you know, worth 3 quarters of a million dollars. He's billion. 3 sorry, 3 quarters of a billion, correct. And so even if he does walk away, uh, if he loses 160 million, which is probably insured, but even if it isn't, it's not like he's going to miss a meal from this. Right. Yeah, but it's it's it it hurts him in a different way. Yes. It's not the finance. He's been right. He yeah. lost, and that hurts him a lot. And he lost two things. He lost the money and he lost the girl. And losing the girl was his own damn fault. Yeah, he lost he lost her on his own. Yeah. Um, so the a few other things that that we should just talk about. So Steven Soderbergh, uh, this is probably the height of his his this this is where his star was the highest. Right about the time he made Ocean's Twelve, he just finished making in the same year Aaron Brockovich and Traffic. Both of which he was nominated, I believe he was nominated for both as Best Director. Uh, and he won as Best Director for Traffic. So he has he has an Oscar for Best Director. He's made many films since. He makes movies all the time. Uh, and again, he makes movies all over different genres. Um, really a versatile director. But uh, so... Soderbergh is making... But what he doesn't make very much of is sort of popular fare like this. Um, you know, he's making a movie with huge stars. Brad Pitt and George Clooney were pretty much the biggest stars in male stars in Hollywood at the time. Julia Roberts was the biggest uh, female star in Hollywood at the time. She had just won an Oscar for Aaron Brockovich when this came out. 
Um, then you've got Matt Damon, who is just, I mean, he's, he's well known. He's been, he's been nominated for an Oscar for Goodwill Hunting. He's won for writing the screenplay, but he's not quite an A-lister yet, maybe an A-minus-lister at this point. Immediately, right, shortly after this film, The Born Identity comes out, and then pretty much he's on the same level as, as Clooney mm-hmm. and Pitt. But even the character actors in here, most of them are at least well-known character actors. The um, only of the main characters that is really a complete unknown, and I cannot remember the the gentleman's name is the the Chinese acrobat mm. who has been the Chinese acrobat in just the oceans movies. No other film credits. I looked it up earlier today just to verify, and it's just the oceans movies. Okay. Yeah, that that's uh, that's his his claim to fame. I mean, he was a uh, he was a member of the Chinese a Chinese acrobatic troupe and got courted to be in this movie and um, thought about thought about being a stuntman but uh, ended up going back to to being an acrobat I'm looking up his name which I'm afraid because it is Chinese I'm going to butcher he didn't have many lines either and kind of the best one was was the nonverbal line he couldn't speak a lot of English mm-hmm and I like the fact that they never even had him try. A couple times he has some lines that are obviously in Chinese and Rusty Rose Mandarin. Or Cantonese. It's hard or to Cantonese, say. Sure. And- Shabo Kin. S-H-O-B-O-Q-I-N. So, so yeah. that's, hmm. a, that's a guess. That's a guess? At his name. Uh, okay, guess at his name. So I like some of the themes that they have of this. Like, uh, every time you see Rusty, he's eating. Is he? Pretty much. There's a character choice that Brad Pitt made. He uh, reasoned that because these guys are on the move and they're working so hard that you eat whenever you can. Mm. My favorite piece about that is that when they're doing the, the when they were doing the shoot... Of eating shrimp cocktail, and apparently it took so many takes that he ate forty shrimp. Yuck. <laughs> so yeah, but he he uh, made the decision that his character was going to be eating in every scene. See, that is a little bit more character building than than I kind of thought that they did. A lot of characters, so they make a lot of decisions about which characters. You know, obviously Danny, this character, and we get we get most of it from his point of view, uh, but. But development in terms of the he's the he's the new guy coming in and and learning the ropes. Most of the rest of them are kind of kind of trope characters that don't get a lot of extra time other than we're going to give you a definition of what this character's like. And it was like a, just a bit a bit more than a montage. Right. Like the introducing everybody. Their scenes individually were like long enough that I think it was a little bit more than a montage. I have a question about the famous people that seem to be playing themselves. Yep. Is he like their coach, like their their blackjack coach? Is that he's there? He's teaching yes. them poker. He's poker, yeah. yeah, yeah. Teaching them poker and g- getting mo- a lot of money off of it because you know that they're paying him. And these are theoretically rich, rich guys that are just filled with fame. Ah, it's hardly anything. I'm like fifty dollars. That's so much. How <laughs> how did that scene? What how how did that end up in the movie? I couldn't tell you that. Wanted to give you the idea that. That this is what Rusty's doing, kind of waiting mm-hmm. for Danny to get out. And bored. Is, yeah. I okay. Mean, 
it's is an unpleasant job for him. Okay. Um, now the inside joke about it, of course, is TV shows at the time. But um, what's funny about it is when they when they leave, get crowded right by the crowd, and the two people that walk right past are George Clooney and Black World. Or two of the biggest stars in the world are completely ignored by the crowd. They're going for Topher Grace playing Topher Grace. Um, Some of the things, uh, the all were not originally the ones that they wanted. Uh, Originally for the two, uh, I don't know, I kind of like these guys too, so it's hard to say. I've never seen performances Uh, are all canceled to me. So I would have been cool with the Wilsons. See, I have not seen anything since I found out what an awful person he is, Mm -hmm. so... Yeah, this was this is maybe uh, the first or second thing that he's in that I've seen. Did he play? Was he in a movie with Ben Affleck at some point? I'm sure he has been. Probably, yeah, right. Uh, he was in the town with Ben Affleck. I didn't see that. Um, the the two the, the Ben Affleck, uh, and I'm trying to remember what the uh, what, uh, Gone Girl Gone. I think it's just called Gone Girl. Well, Gone Girl yeah. is one of them. Is he in yeah. that? I don't know if Casey is. So now I'm going to look up Ben Affleck, and I will tell you. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think he's been in most of Ben Affleck's films. Um, not sure about. Was he in Gigli? Uh, <laughs> I don't think he was in Argo. But uh... There's three scenes from Gigli that's worth watching, and the rest of it just isn't. I'm talking about decent things. Um, yeah, Gone Baby Gone in the town. Are uh, the two, the two sort of Boston films that that Ben Affleck did, and I think Casey Affleck, who is indeed his brother, yes, uh, is in both of them. Yes, he is. Hmm. Shown to be kind of a shitty individual. Oh darn! Oh darn! Oh darn! Um, done a film on this podcast about George Clooney or. Or Brad Pitt. We could spend a considerable amount of time talking about the film. So we probably don't have a ton of time to talk about those three actors. I think George Clooney, he had his big breakthrough on ER. He's one of those few actors that decided he was going to break into film and did. Uh, In spite of the fact that uh, one of his first major motion pictures was Batman and Robin. The Bat Nipples. I actually, I like that movie more than Zero. I don't know why. I rewatched it. I don't know why I like it. That's well, the one that has a Mr. Freeze too, it, right? It is. Yeah, that's it's I've seen worse movies. Well, I've seen worse movies too, and yet not many. <laughs> um and not usually with that level of stars and that level of budget yeah. to have something that nonsensical. Yeah. But uh, Clooney uh, regularly makes a point of apologizing for that role. He does. Which, uh, frankly, I feel that he played the role as written about as well as it could have been played. He's a good actor. Yes. uh, That was handed a bad role. Um, But over the over the next several years, he sort of sort of really emerged as a very, very good uh, lead male. And so the Ocean film Ocean's Eleven was kind of uh in the middle of that that time when he's he's just kind of the it guy, hmm. uh, he's he's in the middle of his two people's sexiest man alive uh, choices. The career high. Yeah, so he he's already got one, but he will get a second one a few years later. The same with Brad Pitt, who will be sexiest man alive twice, 
once before Ocean's Eleven and once after, if that's any indication of how good-looking the folks in this movie are, as you brought it out. I did. Uh, later, later uh, Matt Damon will join them as a sexiest man alive. So how there many has he earned? Only one. Only one? Matt Damon only has one. So the next movie is Ocean's 12. Yes, yes. it's does, not very good. Does everybody come back and then they add Tess? Or is that too Everybody much comes back and they add another character. Was that when they added was that Catherine, Zeta, Catherine Jones? Zeta Jones? Because they make the joke about Rusty needing a girl. So in the next movie, they give Ugh. Rusty a girl. Barf. Um, but they bring in it's Ocean's 12 and then Ocean's 13, as in those are the people actually pulling the con. Tess does not pull the con, although I don't even remember if she's in it much. Yeah, the next two are not that memorable. They really are not. Um, in, the, in the next one, uh, they get high. The, well, of course, Terry Benedict finds out that they committed the heist, and he comes after them. Basically, he forces them to pull another job. against To make reparations and give him a share or something? Well, yeah, so he might be the 12th. It oh, might be that yuck. Zeta Jones didn't show up until Ocean's 13. Mm-hmm. I don't um, remember, but one of them he's doing it I've seen them both, but they are not memorable films. He, One of them he's doing it against, like... His new person on the strip rival who has better hotels. Do they follow the same kind of, like, there's a bunch of things that are going to be surprises? Yep. So you know, after you've seen this one, you kind of know more what to expect, that, like, there's going to be surprises. Yeah, and much like other movie makers that have, like, a twist, like M. Night Shyamalan, and then have more twists and more twists after a while, you're like... Where's the what's the twist going to be? They've got to try to make it bigger. What's going to be? And then you're like, oh, that was the twist. And then eventually the twist is that there is not a twist anymore. Yeah. Well, he doesn't really do those anymore. Yeah. He Mm. still doesn't do that. But not about that guy. It's just that the other reason the movie worked. The movie really works. Even though you've got all these big stars, they're all doing what they can you know enough about it that you think you're in on it, and then you realize, no, you're all or anything. They're just doing it for the love of the game. Yeah, pretty much. And Clooney's doing it also a little bit to be, like, petty. Yes. But it's just that they like having money. Obviously not white-collar criminals, but, you know, they're the, the high-class ones. They only go right. after the rich. Well, I'm sure they tip their waitresses. Not Ocean's 13. <laughs> So, and was in Ocean, that's the... The Terry Benedict character. The Terry Benedict character. Mm. That's in 13. Okay. For him to be in the second one, right, with his two guys tailing him, that seems like perfect building of a sequel. It does seem a little. Like it could, but then, if I remember... Andy Garcia is in the second one. I thought he was. He's in Ocean's... So that they ditch the bodyguards after a while because Garcia is like... You've been following me and they've done nothing? Yeah, they've done nothing. Okay. What does he think they're going to do? Like heist again? They, they do. Well, he assumes but... they can't tell. It is amazing what people think. Hmm. Yeah. So anyway, in, this one, in that one, Danny Ocean has theoretically died, who puts together a heist with a group of women, um, which is uh, it's not as good as Ocean's Eleven. It's better than 12 and 13? Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know if it's in theaters by the time you listen, but it might be. Fair enough. It came out relatively in providing you with a certain level of misdirection where you think you know, little twist. 
is like, oh, oh, that's what was going on there. Do you think oh. they call this one eight so that they can do then a nine and ten? Which is it implied dead or is it like well, they say surprise that dead like he's not. He's, he's got a graves better be in there. Oh, so okay. and there's a couple more lines of ooh, and everyone kind of and it's kind of a shrug. It's like, well, so there will be did, but if the film did well and the actresses involved want to do another one, then there will be another one, another one. But in any case, uh, we are getting down to the... We have talked about this film for quite some time, and uh, we need to do final thoughts. So I'm going to throw it to Pat first to see if you have a final thought that you would like to share about Ocean's Eleven. Well, let's see. Uh, something that I actually noticed today, um, just how true this particular line is, where they say, you know, when it comes right down to it, when the between Ocean and Rusty, which one are you going to go for, um, Tess or the money? And remember, Tess doesn't split 11 ways. And his and Ocean's response is, if it all goes well, um, I'm not the one who has to make that choice. And it comes across as a, you know, like, well, you know, hopefully everything goes well and I'm not going to have to make that decision, except for the fact that at the end of the movie, he makes sure Tess sees her boyfriend Benedict make that choice. Mm -hmm. So which one do you want? Do you want the money or do you want Tess? And he's like, I'll take the money. He had no intention of giving the money back, but Tess gets to know that she's worth less to him than money. I would feel okay being worth $160 million. Yeah, but she's not. She's not worth that much. Well, that was 168. Like, what's the point at which he wouldn't take the money? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Fair question. All right, Heather, what's your final thought on Ocean's Eleven? I was really feeling like it was realistic until the elevator shaft was full of lasers. Um, And I didn't care that it was, like, a little unrealistic after that. I thought it was fine. I'll probably watch the other ones. Sure. Well, I I don't hate the other two. They're just kind of average. They're average. Um, They're not lasers. They're just basically infrared beams for motion sensor. So they won't like cut anybody in half. No, it's it's literally no. They're not. They're not. Yeah, they're not. They're just motion sensor beams. Do those? Is that really like a way that they do that? Places Um, with lasers like that. It's in almost every heist modern heist movie there is. So. It kind of doesn't matter, I think. Yeah, I don't know if everyone... it's real, but what it is 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 it's a visual storytelling mm-hmm. trick that basically says you cannot get through this. It's something really difficult to get through. Yeah. So that's that's why it's there is is to tell the story that that shaft you can't just drop. You have to sure. you have to cut the power to get to the bottom of the shaft. That's why the power was cut. The thing that's actually least realistic in the entire film is the pinch. Yes. Um, the pinch, uh, it, the the in order to in order to do an EMP blast that would take out all the power in Las Vegas, you would actually need a nuclear weapon. Oh darn! They didn't want to nuke it, and they yeah. wanted to create a de- uh, a lovely device of this magic thing happens. Yeah, which you know. It almost I almost would have rather that he'd cut the power as he'd originally planned. I thought it was kind of that's that if it, there was anything that I, in the film I'm kind of like, well, I don't know. They had like money to spend and time to kill. Well, I guess cuz they do the whole side thing of of going to steal the pinch and I mean it's really just a little comic um 
comic sidebar to the rest of the movie. But I mean, it's funny and I enjoy it, but, but it really is not something that needed to be there. But anyway, that's not my final thought. Um, my final thought about this film and actually the original Ocean's Eleven, which uh, if you want to see it, uh, go right ahead, but don't say we didn't warn you. Um, it's true. Is uh, that a really important part of both of these films and I think one of the things that does not work as well in the next two films is uh, that uh, the character of... that Las Vegas is a character in these films that part of the the DNA of both movies is the city in which it takes place. So I, I always find that really compelling when a movie makes the place such an important piece, su- such an important piece of the atmosphere of the film. And uh, I really enjoy it in this case. I'm not a big fan of hanging out in Las Vegas. I've been there once and it was cool and it's not like I would never go again, but but there is something about Vegas that makes this film feel more alive. So mm-hmm. that's my final thought there. So we want to say thank you, Heather, for coming in and watching the movie with us. Yay. 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 Uh, our next movie, and this is going to be interesting because I don't know where we're going to find somebody who hasn't seen this film, but since we watched Westworld last week and we had to talk about my last time and we had to talk about Michael Crichton, we are going to watch Jurassic Park. Oh, good luck. That's right. We have to find somebody who has <laughs> never seen Jurassic Park. And they're over the age of eight? Well, that's the goal. So join us next time and see who we managed to find who hasn't seen Jurassic Park. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our film fixation. We'll see you next time on A Real Education. Dee, dee.